Hello and welcome to A Method to the Madness, the weekly podcast where we discuss, analyse, and otherwise ponder our favourite films and television. I'm your host, Patrick Laverne, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Mitchie Hartnett. How you doing, Mitchie? Yeah, good, Pat. How's it going with the COVID? Yeah, pretty good. Um, down pretty here. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fucking going swell. Hey, fucking yeah, well, I mean, well, our kind of, Australia's doing all right. I mean, I can't speak for the rest of the world, of course, but... Down here, things are opening up again, which is nice. I went shopping on a weekend, um, bought some clothes. Yeah. Stimulated the economy. It's quite a significant event now. If you think yeah. I mean, how's it going down your, up your end? Yeah, I was in the city the other day and heaps of people walking around. Not that that's anything new since the, everyone doesn't give a fuck anyway, but yeah. Uh, it's good to see that things are returning to slightly to normal. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, this week we are discussing Ad Astra, the 2019 film directed by James Gray, written also by James Gray and Ethan Gross, starring Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, and Liv Tyler, kind of. Who's Liv Tyler? The Brad Pitt's wife or girlfriend. Why would you even say that? She's in it for like 10 seconds. Because she's like a famous actress. Yeah, I know. All I remember from was Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. But... But (laughs) <laughs> okay so so like it's I, I actually think it's kind of like fitting that Liv Tyler is this role because like you know literally any actress could have played this but Liv Tyler to me has always had this like kind of ethereal mysterious quality about her and it's funny that yeah. she's paired up with Brad Pitt who in this movie is like the super detached like what just because she played you know. an elf in Lord of the Rings well all right man <laughs> <laughs> don't have to just dissect my Views like that now. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, pr- that's pretty much where I'm drawing that from. Anyway, I digress. As always, we'll go around and give our general impressions of the film. Mitchie, what did you think of this film? I was not that impressed to begin with. I thought the movie was slow, especially the first half of it, and some of the scenes were a little bit disjointed. But it really picked up in the second half, and even on my first watch, I really appreciated the second half and the finale of it. And... As I, well, when I finished the movie and thought about it before watching it a second time, I actually grew to kind of, it it made me more curious the movie about what it was saying because there's some deep subtext in this movie. It says a lot of stuff about space travel and about theology and I really appreciated that. I just, I guess I couldn't quite comprehend it during the movie so much but after thinking about it, I really did kind of get the gist of the movie and now I really do like the movie and I think it's actually quite a damn good space movie in my opinion yeah i was pretty much on the same boat as well I wasn't too impressed the first time i saw it but the more i thought about it the more i started to come around and like it i think it's funny how much like the pensive attitude of the film it kind of becomes more richer with more reflection mm. uh yeah I, I was also sort of confused at what the film was trying to be the first time around it's reserved indie film style sort of clashed with the big budget cgi and like especially that moon rover scene which i'm sure we'll talk about yeah um (laughs) i don't know as you as you said this film is like incredibly deep i think uh and yeah as, as i continue to sort of research what this film is evoking the the more i grow interested in it and i would gladly watch it a third time if i needed to yeah all right so As always, we'll go into a brief plot summary. 
In the near future, the human race has advanced significantly in spacefaring, building bases on the Moon and Mars. To satiate human curiosity, the Lima Project headed by Clifford McBride was formed to pioneer into the outer solar system and discover extraterrestrial life. Upon reaching Neptune, contact with the Lima Project mysteriously ceased, with the crew presumed dead. Sixteen years later, Clifford's son Roy has followed his father becoming a stolid employee of the US Space Command. After a series of unexplainable extraterrestrial power surges threatens to destroy humanity, it is divulged to Roy that his father may still be alive around Neptune and is presumed to be the source of these Armageddon-like surges. Roy accepts a mission to save the planet by reaching out to his father, taking us through a wild but beautiful journey through our own solar system, including a disjointed but impressive lunar action scene, death by baboon in outer space, and swimming through an enigmatic lake on Mars. That was pretty sick. Roy eventually... <laughs> that, that scene where he's like in the water... I know, it's like such a... Oh, I thought you were talking about my sentence. No, no. Oh. Fuck your sentence. <laughs> Roy eventually finds out the truth about his father, who murdered the rest of his crew to prevent them from returning to Earth. Space Command sent out a mission from Mars to assassinate Clifford, which Roy hijacks. As a result, Roy murders three astronauts, leaving him alone on the long journey from Mars to Neptune. Previously a very phlegmatic person, Roy realises he is more dependent on human contact than he thought. Eventually reaching his father, he witnesses his father's psychological loss from being isolated in the vastness of space for so long, and questions deep space travel. It is also revealed that during the 29 years of the Lima Project, Clifford was unable to find any other life in the universe. Roy tries to extract his father, but Clifford refuses to return, symbolically throwing him out into the dark abyss of space. After introspecting, Roy realises Earth is his home, returning and destroying the Lima Project in the process. He finally reaches Earth, starting his life anew with a fresh perspective. End of movie. What do you reckon of my uh, summary? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't praise me then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was very. It was a very apt summary. Bit of style in there too. Bit of creative license. Well done. Thanks, man. All right. So we'll start by talking about the scientific inaccuracies. Ooh. Uh, Mitchie, as a, as a man of science, I know that this film ticked you off in a lot of places. Do you care to elaborate? Yeah, so um, I know some bits about science and some of the stuff in this movie kind of irked me a little bit. I've got nine points written down. Um, I don't know if it's worth going through all nine points, but... Some of it was a bit controversial, and I don't know. Should I just go through each one? I mean, what, um, what, is there anything that stood out to you first before I ramble through my list of okay? So annoyances. The stuff that stood out to me that I didn't necessarily know if it was wrong or right was stuff like Neptune being out of the way of the sun's magnetic field. Uh, is that legit? I, I, I didn't bother to check where the magnetosphere of the sun went to. I mean, it might be outside of the magnetosphere. It probably is. Though it's kind of besides the point. It doesn't matter because our instruments are not limited by the magnetic field from the sun. They're fundamentally limited by the diffraction limit of everything. So anytime you want to observe something with your eyeballs or with a giant telescope or a microscope, you need to be able to resolve that object right to be able to distinguish it from its surroundings or mm. a st or something next to it. 
and that's actually limited by the wavelength of the light that comes off it. So if you observe things in a visible wavelength, i.e. shit we can see, like red and yellow and blue and that kind of stuff, then the resolution limit is about 10 billion meters. So as in, I can distinguish something 10 billion meters long for something that's at Alpha Centauri, which is all the way, the closest star to Earth, right? Which mm. is the closest exoplanet that Clifford could have seen, for example. Yet you look at the photos of those planets at the end and he's got like immense resolution on it. Like he sees bloody ravines and shit on the planet and rivers and stuff. And that's physically impossible. Unless that planet, he was looking at it from like its orbit or something, there's no way he could be able to resolve such detail on that planet because they're presumably like elsewhere in the galaxy, right? Like like millions of light years away. So even further than Alpha Centauri, yet he's still able to resolve them. And that's actually physically not possible. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, so that, that was kind of a bullshit explanation. There was kind of not any reason to go out to Neptune to be able to see extraterrestrial light when you think about it scientifically like that. Yeah, serves yeah. the story well, though. Yes, unlike, like a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> unlike this next scene, uh, the, the space rover. Now, we kind of discussed this already, but theoretically, there shouldn't be no sound on the moon, right? And Th- in- There should be no sound, yeah. And... In this fight scene, there is a lot of sound, though it's muffled. I, I feel like they were conscious of that fact, and but they still wanted, you know, sound effects, so they added these in. To, <laughs> yeah, I uh, know it's a cop out. Eh? It's like, yeah, like oh, we, we want to keep it realistic, but let's fucking also have like six scenes with sound and shit. So let's just muffle the sound, make it sound like it's underwater. But yeah, I mean, there is some merit in, I guess, the science behind it, like. Sound transfers through anything. It doesn't necessarily need to be air, right? It can transfer through rock, water, dirt, whatever. Like, it, it, trans- it basically transfers through matter. It moves and shifts that matter around. That's why you can still hear things underwater, right? Even though it's not air underwater. But, like, when there's nothing there, it's a vacuum, i.e. the moon, then um, you can't actually transfer sound through it. But I was thinking maybe you could transfer sound through the ground of the moon, comes up through the rover and it kind of vibrates through into their spacesuits, into the air in their spacesuit, then they're able to hear it. And that's why it's so muffled. Mm. But I don't know whether that's legit or not. Probably no one does. No one's really tested that shit on the moon yet. But Also, their their rovers get shot and there's sound from that. So I get like, it would be more plausible than traveling through the ground if it would travel through the rover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, But like the main fucking problem with this scene in my opinion was what's with the like no man zone on the moon like you got the civi- civilian base where tourists go then you got some sick military base with top secret shit in it but like why put them miles apart and then between the- those two bases there's some fucking deadly pirate zone you know like it just doesn't make any sense like put them together if the moon's that deadly because humans can't get along and they're still shooting each other or the use the american military might that I'm sure they still have a hundred years from now and just cordon off that area to make a secure zone so that people can go between easily. You know, like that was what pissed me off more. Like the whole scene didn't make any sense. It's just like, what the fuck was the point of that? Like, yeah, I, and, it was a good know, scene individually, but the reasoning in the film was so he was trying to keep a low profile, right? He was flying commercial. Yeah. But the thing is like the, his mission, the where he's going is, 
to stop this cataclysmic event that could actually tear apart everything, society on Earth and shit. Like, it, this is some there's some serious consequences to not making it there, and they just give him like one extra cart as an escort in this, <laughs> as as we see like extremely dangerous environment. That is a good point. Yeah, never thought like about that. at at some point. The, you know the military has to weigh their options of like oh how much do we want to you know remain incognito versus actually guaranteeing the the safety of earth and yeah they there's a, there a poor decision right there which could have been remedied if they just put the base all in the same place yeah but then you wouldn't have a sick fucking mad max in space dude <laughs> mad max in space yes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah um the like what what is the significance of this scene i, I was trying to figure it out because you know as, as i said earlier like everything about this film is kind of like the inverse of interstellar in the way that it's so reserved uh much like the main character roy and i don't know it just it seemed weird to throw in this action scene um yeah and it didn't fit i i can connect anything to anything if i want to if i stretch far enough and what i've concluded is that well not concluded but a connection to be made is that you know how he gets introduced to that guy who's like his tour guide at the beginning and then along the journey he dies and he sees like a picture of his wife and kid or something yeah 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 and i know like it, a lot of people die on this journey like you know there's three people <laughs> yeah. in the later on and all these people escorting him right now like a lot of people die just to for the sake of roy's mission and I don't know, I guess it's meant to add to that sense of vagueness of purpose, or, I don't know, I guess, like, anxiety of about your purpose. If there was, there, there must be some significant meaning to Roy getting there, otherwise what was the point? All those people died in vain kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's pretty much all I got. Yeah, it was, yeah, I guess it was that, it was to show, I, I guess it was to show how deadly the moon was, and how with, there's still some discord within humanity mm. despite it was just a way to to like it was kind of hinted at at some points in the movie like this conflict between countries still i don't know america and china still don't get along that kind of idea right but yeah. to have that scene there where people actually die and there's action and shit like that it kind of conveys that point a little bit more yeah a, li yeah, a little bit better right but like but it's still just it, i don't know if it was really necessary or not like i don't really care that there's discord on the planet or not yeah. like that's not really what the movie's about i mean i i guess it was to show that and and i guess this kind of extends to what we might talk about in a bit but i kind of looked at the movie like it's anti-space travel right and that's that's a big distinguishment from this compared to interstellar interstellar is pro space varying this one is mm. anti-spacefaring. We should stay on Earth. Fuck space travel because it fucks with your brain. It's not good for you. It's not worth it. Whatever. And I guess by showing that humanity has advanced and we've got bases on the moon and Mars, yet you are able to show a scene where humans are still at conflict with each other, it kind of supports the fact that spacefaring doesn't really have any benefit for humanity in that sense. Because you'd think such a big thing like landing on Mars right, would have the ability to unify humanity. Yet, yeah, that scene in itself shows that clearly not the case. There's bases on Mars and uh, bases on the moon, and we're still doing the same fucking thing, which is just warring with each other, like we always have. Yeah, done. that's interesting, man. Like the the one giant leap for mankind is still just like riddled with like commercialism and stuff, as you see on the moon base. You know, yeah, so nothing many, changes. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, we we, like we go out we go out there and try and like I don't know change, but really we're not going to. Anyway. Hmm. 
All right, next scientific inaccuracy from me, which really annoyed me considerably, was when they're calling Clifford, i.e. Roy's dad, from Mars in that fucking weird-ass soundproof room where everything's the colour of Mars in there. No wonder why they're nutjobs in there. Like, fuck, what? Like, you're on a red planet. Let's also colour the <laughs> interior of our fucking military base red as well because, you know, you don't see enough fucking red on Mars. Anyway, mm. but, like, they, like, res- wait for a response and they're like, nah, no response. Like, 10 seconds after he sent the, the signal. Neptune's, like, fucking, like, 4 trillion, 4 billion miles away, right? Light takes about four hours to get there and then it'll take another four hours to get back. So, you know, it, it will take at least eight hours for you to hear the signal. So... Why are they waiting there for 10 seconds? They're like, oh, shit, there's no response. We'll try again tomorrow. Like, that was bullshit. They had to have <laughs> wait for at least eight hours before they could have even got any signal if you heard it. You know? Yeah. Like, that really pissed me off because it's just such a fundamental thing about space, yet it kind of just glossed over it. But I guess, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure they could have found a way to show the case that. But anyway. I feel like when they were designing that building, the the board members were like, all right, so we want the most dystopic-looking building uh, <laughs> yeah. that you can make, please. Um, yeah, it, like th- those those comfort rooms with the projections on the walls and shit. Yeah, like, uh, how would how could anybody think that that is comforting? Yeah, that and, was fucking like, uncomfortable watching him yeah. in that room. Like, <laughs> yeah, um, I I I guess and and I guess I mean I'm which kind of jumping ahead, but that was kind of my idea is that like it showcases that you humans can't deal with outer space right like that's my take of the movie and getting farther from the earth itself you're less bound to reality you kind of become more crazy and that's what mars is the people on there seem a bit sus like the lady that signs them off she's all frizzy Mm. haired and shit she's actually in um that tv show orange is a new black and she kind of plays like a crazy role in it i think i'm not really seeing much of the show but like that's her and she's still wearing fucking overalls in this which i thought was funny orange overalls (laughs) as well and she kind of seems a bit weird and there's like graffiti on the wall and shit so it's like they're kind of a bit strange these martian living humans and and i guess and then at the epitome of that is Clifford McBride, who's all the way up fucking Neptune, and he's, like, the nuttiest of them all. So, like, it kind of shows that yeah. the distance makes a difference. It has a psychological impact on you. But it still doesn't make sense why they would colour the inside red. But anyway. I think this... Now that I think about it, this particular bit when they're on Mars is indicative of this idea of the romanticised ideal of space travel, of, of pioneering, you know, mm. meeting reality. Yep. Uh, which is ultimately a kind of hollow replication of what everyone thought it would be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's nothing romantic about it because there's nothing out there but a void of nothing. I got, I got, I got two more points before right. we can move on to some important shit because I just need to say this. All right, firstly, when he's on the way to from Mars to Neptune and he sees Jupiter and Saturn, yeah, cool, fucking beautiful scenery, love the cinematography, whatever. But, like, Jupiter and Saturn are in a massive fucking orbit. What makes you think that they're going to be in line with Neptune while he's on the way to Neptune? It could be on the other side of the fucking sun when he's going to Neptune, right? Yet he passes by both of them. Like, what are the chances of that? But it's possible. Yeah, it is possible, but it's just so... Un- <laughs> like, it's, like, it's you know, like, it's the saying, like, when all the planets align. Like, it's unlikely. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, it doesn't happen very often. And they also skip true. Uranus, like... I've seen Jupiter and Saturn enough in movies. I want to see Uranus. No one fucking <laughs> showcases that planet. Poor, poor thing never gets any any fame at all. Like, 
Anyway, yeah. and the biggest pet hate. Oh wait, no, sorry, go on. Well, yeah, I was just gonna say like it's pretty dissonant with that idea of like the ideal of space not being met. You know, you, you have this like extremely lucky view of two planets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of like it's yeah. Anyway, um, but the, but the worst thing about this, the science in this movie, the explanation for why the Earth is gonna end, the antimatter surge that is coming from Clifford's ship. Like you, you, when he gets to the ship, and there was like a piss, piss off small ass antenna on that little fucking ship he's on, and it's emitting these surges that goes all the way to Earth, four billion kilometers away, and it's fucking destroying Earth. The immense amount of energy you'd need to emit out of that antenna, well, firstly, you wouldn't be able to fit it into like a ship that small anyway. Like nothing is physically able to create that much energy, and if it did, it would blow the antenna up. Like you think about it, right? Like it's destroying Earth. Yeah, he's shooting it out of a normal-looking antenna. Yeah, and then when when Roy goes in his little capsule and boards his dad's ship, he gets blasted by the the surge, and it just rocks his fucking little (laughs) capsule a little bit. But he's all good. Like it's like he he still gets there, and he's and the ship the the little ship capsule is in is intact. Yeah, it's destroying the fucking space antenna, the giant space antenna at the start of the movie, fucking four billion kilometers away. Like. That was We've just got like some mild turbulence, folks. Just hold on. <laughs> yeah, like, but wouldn't it be really bad if you're like a hundred meters from it? If it's destroying yeah. the massive ass antenna at Earth, like, I don't know. That that really irked me, and I apologize for swearing so much, which I only just realized. But I'm just passionate about how bad that was. Well, I I understand your frustration considering how high the bar was set with Interstellar. Yes. Yeah. In terms of scientific inaccuracy, in, scientific accuracy. Sorry. All right. What's your last point? No, that was it. That was I had to. Oh, that was yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Mm. Cool. Um. Yeah. Let me let me know. Let us know if you think I'm wrong. Please send us an email. <laughs> We'd like an email. Clear. We have multiple enemy craft in pursuit. Roy, trying to wrap us. move on to this film's exploration of isolation now what i particularly love about this is it it works on the plot and the character which are like the two pillars of story both have parallel explorations of isolation so the metaphorical isolation that roy puts himself in because of what he feels is, is significant is tested by the literal isolation of space so yeah that's a pretty cool little connection right there yeah like the 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 literal isolation of his environment makes him realize his internal isolation is like is not the right way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I like um, this isolation is a way of kind of like I said before showcasing that spacefaring is a bad thing and we shouldn't look to the stars as our future but look on our planet and within ourselves for that right. Like that that's I believe is the general consensus of the movie. That's what it's saying. Hmm. And yeah. Like, the reason for that is because of how far things are apart in space, you cannot psychologically deal with that fact. Like, you know, like, religion, like, religion have these ideas of God 
where God has lived forever and always will live forever. Now, as human beings, I can't, well, as a human being myself, I can't comprehend that. Like, how can something live forever and have been living forever? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? And, and that's kind of like, it's beyond the scope of human understanding to kind of conceptually understand, like conceptually process something like that. Um, mm. Not that I'm religious, but those people that are religious would have to kind of bypass that logic behind that and just kind of pretend that, you know, it is the case, but I'm not going to understand why. And I believe that's the same thing what this movie is trying to say about space and the distances that you have to travel to get anywhere in space. It's it's because you're limited by nature, right? Like nothing can go faster than the speed of light and humans can't even get anywhere near that speed. So to get to Neptune, it takes what him like six or eight weeks or something and he's stuck in isolation by himself with no contact. Imagine if we need to get outside of our solar system, then it takes lifetimes to get anywhere. And that's the impossibility of long range space travel. You just can't get anywhere within the scope of human lifetimes because we only live yeah. for 100 years but things take thousands of years to travel to therefore it's not possible for us to travel there it's not easy travel it's just the travel itself is so long and so arduous because of its length and and isolation and its loneliness that we just can't physically do it or can't psychologically mm. do it i should say and the the fact is that if you were to travel out of our solar system you probably wouldn't it'll, pr- it'll probably be a one-way trip is the thing uh there's i can't remember who it's by there's a video that sort of explains this principle of the universe constantly expanding and that combined with time dilation it would actually be quite near impossible to find your way back after you've gone outside yeah interesting i never thought about that yeah that's actually makes sense um so yeah it's man it's a a depressing thought (laughs) it is yeah it is but that that's the point saying we shouldn't bother you know it's it's like and also, like, yeah, yeah. the whole idea of... I ah, no, we'll, we'll get into it. So as we were saying before, the, the reason for Roy's isolation in the first place is because he's chasing what he feels is significance. Now, I think the main question this film poses, which is pretty obvious, I think, is what is significance? Uh, and it explores this question at both the individual level and the cosmic level. So as I was saying before... Roy's exploration for what is significant to him is his father, right? And his father's sort of drive for what is significant to him is knowledge, something beyond, you know, human mm. values or the value of humans, I guess. And so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw on some uh, philosophy here. So, and, you know, obviously there has been the, the question of what is significant pretty much it could be changed around to what is the meaning of life it's probably one of the most sought after questions in philosophy and the the struggle to answer that question uh has sort of been on the minds of many thinkers throughout history and there have been many attempts to answer this aristotle uh has famously sort of expanded and continued the work of that plato and socrates had laid down uh, in the areas of ethics and metaphysics and he devised this idea called the human function so, right, uh, disclaimer, I haven't actually read any of Aristotle's work, but I did find this professor from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Susan Sorvmeyer. She kind of distilled what this human function is about. So she says, The motion of the universe is eternal, and its cause is an eternal unmoved mover, Aristotle's God. Our goal in life is to achieve happiness, which comes in two varieties, 
the human happiness we achieve by exercising the virtues of character, and the godlike happiness we achieve when we grasp eternal truths. And then much later on, uh, this was a lot of thinkers before, after, and in between Kant and Aristotle uh, explored this question, but Kant was also another one who explored it, and he came up with this idea of the highest good, which is pretty much abiding by moral maxims that essentially instruct one to be unwaveringly virtuous in life, thus giving them purpose. Now, I know these concepts have more to do with kind of ethics, but it still provides a framework for meaning and what one should do with one's life. So, okay, what are you, what are you saying then? What, what is the meaning of life? What, what is significant? Well, I was just going to apply it to this film. Yeah, so it's interesting to see what the characters in this film hold as significant. So obviously Roy uh, abides by that the latter part of Aristotle's two modes of purpose, you know, not not the virtues of character, but the grasping of eternal truths. And so does his father, obviously, because Roy takes after his father. But I don't know, so if you just look at the journey of Roy, he starts off in a very kind of static and passive position. And he's kind of doing what he thinks his purpose is, which is progressing the scope of mankind. So, and he does that by working on the antenna. It's like, he's just kind of one of many. He's not, and I don't know, uh, he, he can't really see the effects of his labor. Yeah, he may be sort of indirectly progressing the scope of mankind, but it's as much as, say, like one tradie who's working on a building construction. It's like, they can't say that they built that building. <laughs> They just helped with it, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, um, after he receives this offer to actually be, to actually have tons of agency to progress the scope of mankind, and uh, this takes him to the extremes of what he thinks his purpose is, you know, which is actually actually going to the far reaches of the solar system to meet his dad and stuff. Only then he discovers his ultimate purpose, which is actually his lack of purpose. So at this point, does he opt for the other way of happiness, which is achieved by exercising the virtues of character? Yeah, pretty much. Like, What does that mean, exercising the virtues of character? It's, well, just for one to be virtuous, uh, I think traditionally it's sort of accepted that you, you look out for others, mm-hmm. which is interesting because, like, you know, progressing the scope of mankind, you could argue, is looking out for others. You know, it's like... I don't know if you if you hold the ideal that progress is always a good thing then obviously you know that's probably how Clifford uh justified it to himself it's like I'm I'm doing this for mankind and thus I'm I'm virtuous and then Roy probably held that ideal as well until he met his father and saw like the effects of it and that the truth kind of hit him of it's hollow and it didn't actually help anyone in the end and I don't know, he just saw his father as unfulfilled and sort of there was a life gone to waste. And yeah, he, yeah, he, you know, he realized what is significant is not that drive for progress, but rather actually living it, by that. I mean, you know, actually living on Earth, having a traditional life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 no, that makes sense. I mean, that, I guess yeah. that's what he gets to at the end, right? Like he understands that sometimes just pioneering and, and advancement of science is not necessarily the way to live a life like it's not a good life to have at all yeah and i don't know like i i like how i like the process of him realizing this of of what is significant in his life on that journey from mars to neptune how he's kind of he's thinking about you know live tyler 
and he's like god i'm a fucking idiot like i'm so selfish you know he he thought that all this time he was doing the right thing he was being selfless by committing himself to the progress of humanity when in reality he was just hurting this one person mm. uh like deeply and that was like the wrong call to make yeah and i, I uh, yeah. yeah like it's it, him and his father both have that problem like this mm. idea of bl- blind ambition they both like just blinded by their work to advance humanity and it kind yeah. of you know they forget what's important really in their life and and that's what i found interesting about his comparison to his father's oh, comparison of his father's rage clifford's rage to a baboon when he says he's seen that rage before in his father mm. he actually says that before he realizes his father is a murderer right on mars because that happens before mars yeah. so he must have always had this rage clifford like when he was a kid and it's not necessarily due to regression of humanity because he's isolated because this happened when he was younger while clifford was still on earth it may just hint at more the fact that clifford was blind to his family and he just neglected his family for the sake of the space mission and his job and it's kind of taken a toll on roy i guess who learns that at the end like and it's kind of a really simple simple outlook at the end of the day it's kind of like you know like those good parenting and the idea that you know like work isn't everything like you should chill out and actually appreciate other things in life which a lot of people have issues with dealing with yeah for sure um i also like how there's an irony to how he achieves this this revelation so i sort of touched on it before but he thinks that his detachment from anything and everything is what gives him strength Mm. and as he goes through the film and realizes it's his weakness then he has to detach from his detachedness detachedness to move forward yeah and you know that's represented symbolically and literally as he lets go of his dad who was symbolically who was a symbol for his detachedness yeah detachedness yeah yeah um but you know i i think that irony is it makes sense though because in the opening and closing bits of the film he roy's like monologuing over it and in those two parts he there's one line that's the same that he says i am focused only on the essential to the exclusion of all else but you know it's it has a completely different context in in each time mm. uh the first the in the opening it's about him neglecting his his love for you know his girlfriend uh, to for his work and then it's the opposite at the end so yeah i like that yeah it was good good parallel i am ready to go ready to do my job to the best of my abilities I am focused only on the essential, to the exclusion of all else. I will make only pragmatic decisions. I will not allow myself to be distracted. I will not allow my mind to linger on that which is unimportant. Yeah, so I think the final thing I want to touch on is... uh, You brought up religion earlier, and I think that is a big part of this film. Um, and so, as you probably know, uh, in Western culture, there has been a sort of duality between, uh, science and religion. People seem to think that they're opposites, that they're yin-yang, uh, which is, you know, fair enough. Like, their frameworks of reality are pretty different, but it's interesting how this film kind of, this film's take on it. So, you know, in any, in any conversation about the search for meaning, religion is an obvious connection that would be made. 
uh, well, in, in Western thought. And in the previously mentioned philosophies of Aristotle and Kant, there's a point of being self-aware about the fact of concluding a definite meaning in life because of the reassurance of an afterlife or some sort of immortality, you know. So basically, it's like, you shouldn't do good things because you know that when you die, someone's going to, like, judge you. <laughs> and if you're good, you get to be in heaven or whatever, you know. You should just be good just because it is the right thing to do. Yeah, true. But that's that's how they pull the wool over your eyes when you're learning religion. Well, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah this, like, okay, so a lot of the like sordid stuff about religion has to do with the institutions not the actual text behind it but okay yeah, yeah. whatever <laughs> um in uh, yeah in this film there's a weird parallel between that search for meaning in the context of science and in the context of theology and religion so in the same way that the devotion of a priest to their religion would have them prioritize their ideology and blind them to the values that would be considered morally right uh so you know for example like fucking priests touching little kids in the name of god or whatever clifford mcbride is similarly pious about scientific discovery and i like how in this analogy clifford is trying to acquire meaning by finding aliens uh you know which would be similar to someone trying to find meaning by finding god yeah. and both would literally believe that the answers are in the heavens in this in the case of science it would be like heaven is just something that is just far away and unreachable you know what what's interesting is that Clifford is actually a religious man. Is he? Yeah. So one of those like um, videos that Roy watches of him, you know, doing a bloody update on his trip. He says like, "Oh, I'm I'm looking for." He, he I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, "Um, like I'm looking for God or, or God help us or like." He, but he actually says something that obviously indicates that he's religious. Like he didn't say it. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was actually quite interesting because. He is religious. He seems to believe in God, which some scientists do. Um, there are actually a lot of people in the world, a lot of scientists that are religious. The guy who discovered the Big Bang Theory being one guy. Um, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. Like, he's looking... So does that mean he... Is he... Is he... He's, is he traditionally religious? So he believes in a God that's un, unexplainable, you can't find? Or is he more of an agnostic type who kind of believes that there's something out there and he's looking mm. for it. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, uh, like, that would mean... I don't know, that, that would give it a purpose to his purpose, right? Like, he, it's, it's kind of like a, a warped, twisted mentality of traditional Christian values of, like, family. But in this case, he's, like... He's just trying to explore more of God's world and, like, bring it into light. Beauty, magnificence of God, you know? Yeah. So, I guess, I mean, com when you talk about religion or theology is being a big part, big part of this movie. Clifford is looking for a God or looking for some explanation for his life, as we said. And the fact that he doesn't find any extraterrestrial life is kind of, he fails his mission, right? He doesn't find anything at all. And Roy, who kind of is with him at the start of the movie, but then by the end of it, he accepts the fact that he can't find anything. It's like he almost just doesn't worry about the fact that there's no explanation for life that we don't have any significance so what is significant question is unanswerable at least by the fact that we can't find any aliens or any extraterrestrial life and it's similar to a way how an atheist may refuse to believe in a god because 
those people who believe in God, or a lot of people who do believe in God, look for meaning in that God, right? It gives their life meaning, something mm. that happens after the end. But people who don't believe in God, such as atheists who are hardcore not believers in God, what do they see in life? I mean, I'm one of those people, and the way I look at it is I don't care. You know, like I just live life as it is and live life as it is now rather than worrying about what's after life and what the meaning of my life is. And I guess that's kind of what Roy takes up at the end. He just realizes is that this chase for something meaningful, something significant about our life, about the human race is just purposeless and dangerous. It doesn't do any good for anyone. And you should just live in the time now. Which is ironic because that is pretty much what all Eastern religions say is that like, yeah. like, don't, like it, if there is an afterlife, it's irrelevant. Like enjoy this life. Like this is what matters. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's funny how Western religion is formed. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, yeah, exactly. That's what it's about. And that's, that's how I think a lot of people do look at life when they can't find a meaning for life. Like, why does it matter? You know, hmm. just I'm enjoying doing this podcast now. Like, great i'm having fun now i don't care about what's happening and when i die kind of thing like just enjoy life as it is and we'll take death when it comes you and i have to continue on right together to find what science claims does not exist you and i together roy Because the Lima Project has told us that we're all alone in the noble universe. We can't fail. You can't let me fail, Roy. that's where we'll uh wrap this up um as always we'll go around with our recommendations what have you been reading slash watching slash playing mitchy i guess in relation to ad astra we haven't really talked about it too much but and i'm sure most people have seen this movie but they should watch interstellar because i think it's a very good kind of opposite end of the spectrum movie to interstellar like they're two ends right as i've already said one's anti-spacefaring one's pro-spacefaring and the ideas are very different they're not necessarily looking for extraterrestrial life in interstellar but when they find out that that extraterrestrial life in it is actually humans from the future it kind of compounds the idea that we should go out and explore because we end up more advanced while in ad astra there are no humans outside of earth that's it for all of humanity mm. we'll just be stuck not stuck but we'll always be on this planet earth forever and i just kind of like the really nice opposite of parallels what's like they're not parallels they're like kind of antonyms of each other yeah per, like yeah they're perpendicular ideas are like and, and and i i recommend watching the two together and kind of having gen, generating some sort of interpretation of both because it's actually quite insightful about human space travel hmm. yeah, yeah for what sure. about you um, I can't remember if I said this last week, but I've been watching True Detective. Yeah, you said that last uh, week. 
Oh, did I? Fuck. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's 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 kind of you relevant must really to this really like film. it, <laughs> dude. It's so it's phenomenal. Like, uh, and the sort of disposition of that show uh, and of the characters are like, it's it's so pessimistic. It's it, it really stomps on the value of life, and it's it's just like no, just give up. Just all hold hands and die and go dissolve into eternity. Uh, <laughs> But what else? Uh, oh yeah, I've I've been watching uh, the HBO show Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's pretty good. Also, the documentary uh, called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, which is very good. If you like some documentaries about sort of morally corrupt people. All right, where can people find us, Maji? Yeah, so we can be found on a lot of different platforms. Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud and Stitcher being the five main ones. And we're also available on Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker and Radio Public. We just found out that we kind of, our feeds kind of just ended up in those. So if you end up listening on those uh, platforms of some which I've never heard of, feel free to listen to us on there. And also Facebook Facebook and Instagram, follow those pages. Yeah, we've got, we got, we just got heaps of shit. You know, trying to inundate you with our media. We're deep in it now. Uh, should we mention that our... Oh, we've got a pod, website. Uh, our website. Yeah, amttm.com. Well, well, I mean, should we mention that it just recently went up? Yeah, so oh, as of as of um, this recording, we just published our first podcast, 1917. Uh, I don't really know if I if that has any significance about anything, but... We're very happy. Yeah, it's we, very significant to us. Yeah, it's significant to us, but you're going to be listening to it and be like, what the fuck? I was listening to you guys for six weeks now. Now they're telling me that they're happy about uploading it. <laughs> what? But yes, we're happy now yeah. in this current recording. Yeah. Also, if you've gotten any criticisms, feedback, or insights that you'd like to send to us, you can at mail at amttm.com. And yeah, visit our website too. Mm. All right, so next week we are covering the Blade Runner series. The two films are together in one podcast, so instead of individually analysing them, we're doing we're comparing the two, uh, which should be fun. Yeah, it's going to be a, a battle of which one's better, the first or second one. <laughs> Pat likes the first one, and I think it's shit, and I think the second one is far better. It's actually going to be an adoration of both because they're both objectively phenomenal. Anyway, join us next week for that. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. See ya. Bye.